0: Well, good morning, everyone. I trust that you have uh, great plans for Thanksgiving, amen, amen. with the uh, family and friends and all of that. And I would encourage us, um, Just uh, I was just thinking this week about how many opportunities we get uh, during the holidays to show love to one another and obviously to um, extended family and um, non- non-believing neighbors and, and all of that and co-workers. And um, that we would just be mindful, I was praying this week, of the needs of others around us. And so um, I don't know what your practices are, even as uh, individuals or as families, but one, if you do not have a place to go for Thanksgiving this week, I would encourage you to make that need known to somebody in the body here. And um, I am positive that there are multiple people who would love to at least know that you have that need. Uh, so make sure that you do that. And then even more importantly for all of us, As individuals and as families, I would encourage us to be mindful of others um, here in the body of Christ, or maybe even neighbors or whatever, and that we would open up our homes um, to care for others who are in need during this time. Amen? That's a great, this is a great opportunity, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, uh, where people are especially um, soft and tender to the truth of Christ, um, to at least having even conversations about God, and we need to seize upon the moment to do that, all right? So let me pray for us as we begin our time in God's Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, once again we come before You remembering that You are a holy God, a God who is greater than anything, anyone that we can conceive of. And we thank You for the fact that we have open access as Christians as those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ to come before you in prayer. Thank you for the privilege that we have in our country of worshiping you corporately this way, that we can even gather in a building like this as a church to um, sing songs about Christ, to um, fellowship with one another, to hear your word, to apply your word to our lives. Father, thank you for the fact that we have this privilege here. Help us to be those people who worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, I pray for um, this week, especially as we celebrate this uh, holiday called Thanksgiving, that, Father, we understand as Christians that every single day is a day to give thanks. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to be grateful for, and I pray that we especially would seize upon this holiday to proclaim to the world why we are thankful, because we have a Savior in whom we have put our hope for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that we would seize upon that opportunity to be about the Great Commission, especially during this holiday season when people are seem to be, at least from a human perspective, more soft and tender, Lord, to conversations about you. Help us to be people who are sensitive to divine appointments, those opportunities that you may have for us to speak the message and the hope of Christ. We pray that you would bless our time even now as we spend it in your word. May we be hearers. Lord, and doers of your word, who are not self-deceived, that we would apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30 is our text for this morning. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand because of something physical or health, it's okay. Just follow along in your Bibles. But if you're able to stand, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. This is the Word of God. Jesus went out, along with His disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If I were to ask you today a question, what do you believe is the greatest single issue confronting Americans today? What would you say? What would you answer? (laughs) Too much freedom. (laughs) What do you believe is the greatest issue confronting Americans today? I'm sure that in the midst of difficult, tumultuous times in our country that you've pondered that question, right? Um, As informed Christians even. Well, in a survey conducted on the biggest issues that Americans believe are confronting America, many held to the opinion that the biggest issue confronting Americans today is conservatism versus progressivism. In other words, who's going to win the cultural war? Those who are, would classify themselves as conservatives, however you define that, or those who are so called progressivists. Others believe that healthcare is the biggest issue confronting Americans today. I hear a lot of mmm, right? <laughs> healthcare that's ineffective, that we need a complete overhaul of our healthcare system. Others believe that immigration and addressing that issue and what immigration looks like, who should be allowed to come and even stay in our country, that that is the biggest issue confronting Americans today. Yet others believe that racial tensions is the biggest issue confronting America today. How do we eliminate the divide that exists among various nationalities here in our country? Others believe that marriage and family is the biggest issue confronting our country. Both the importance of marriage and family and what constitutes a family. Others believe that there's a lack of education in our country. And that the biggest issue confronting our country is that we need better education, more development programs to help people, um, feel better about themselves and advance themselves and so forth. Others believe that we should be concerned about our environment. The earth is what we should be most concerned about. That what we need is to be thinking about things like climate change and air pollution and clean water and all of that. That that is the biggest issue confronting America. Yet others believe that the U.S. budget is the biggest issue. And specifically government spending. How do we harness better the the government here in America so that they would use the money more for the benefit of the people and things that are worthwhile? And then others were concerned about the upcoming elections. And election integrity. That is the issue of protecting voter rights in the upcoming election so that there is a a fair election process. And voters' rights are honored and held up. These were on the hearts and minds of many or most Americans here in our country. And maybe there are other things that you can think of as an American living here in the U.S., that are important issues that you would single out and say, these are the things that we ought to be thinking about. And undoubtedly, I think we would agree, most of us would, that these are all very important issues, some more than others. All of these things that I mentioned should be things that we as people should not be oblivious to, but we should be absolutely concerned about thing, these things. They are significant to the, for the strengthening of our society and of our country. But, most importantly, beloved, as important as all of these things are, some more than others, we need to remember this, that one day all of these issues will be no more. And one day all of these issues will be solved in a new society, in a new world order that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. That Christ will usher in where all of these things will be solved completely when Christ reigns on this earth. And our presence and participation in that glorious place called the new heavens and the new earth, where all these issues will be solved, will be determined by how you answer one supreme question now, not in the future, but now. And that is the question of who do you believe Jesus to be? Who do you believe Jesus to be? That is the most important question to answer. That is the most important issue that we face in our world today, now, not in the future. You know why? Because how you answer that question of who do you believe Jesus to be is a matter not of earthly or temporary significance, but of eternal significance. Heaven and hell hang in the ba- on the balance depending on how you answer that question of who do you personally believe Jesus to be and are you living in the light of that reality of who He is. So who do you believe Jesus to be, brother or sister in Christ? Who do you believe Jesus to be this morning, my friend, if you're visiting with us? Or if you are not a Christian, but you've been around for a while. Who do you believe Jesus to be? It's this question that we want to consider this morning. As we come to the very pinnacle of Mark's gospel, the very turning point of this whole book, Everything, beloved, that we've seen has been leading to this particular climax or pinnacle. This particular passage here, um, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. This is the climax, and everything that follows after this in the Gospel of Mark flows from this particular passage and the confession that is uttered here by Peter on behalf of all the other disciples. The focus of the first eight chapters has been on the presentation of Christ. And the focus of the latter half of Mark will be on the passion of Christ. In the first eight chapters, we've been um, uh, we've learned about Jesus' teaching and his miracles especially. Sixteen of the nineteen miracles recorded in the Gospel of Mark are in the first eight chapters alone. And all of these miracles are witnessing miracles. Attesting signs, in other words, miracles which show who Jesus is, his identity. Now, up until now, if you remember again and again, we've seen this. Jesus has largely, at least from the reader's perspective, he's avoided any open talk about his identity, any open talk about who he is. Because he knows the crowds are fickle. He knows people just consider him to be some wonder worker. He wants people to understand who he is and love him as the giver, not just his gifts and his blessings that he has for them that are temporal and earthly. And so he's oftentimes told people to be quiet, to be silent, whether the, the crowds or his disciples. And he's even told demons, spiritual forces who utter, you are the Holy One of God, his identity. He's told them to be quiet and to be silent. The Lord has avoided open conversations about his identity again and again and again. But now what we see in this particular text is that things take a turn, don't they? Now Jesus wants to speak openly and pointedly about his identity to his, with his disciples. And the whole account here, the verses that I just read, verses 27 through 30, really center on a great confession that Jesus solicits from his disciples. And from it this morning... We learn what truth about Jesus you and I must embrace if we are to be saved from our sins, if we are to be sanctified as Christians, and if we are to carry out our mission here on this earth of making disciples. Listen, you and I must have a right understanding of who Jesus is. First and foremost, at the basic level, if you don't know Christ, in order for you to be saved from your sins, you must understand who Jesus is and why who He is qualifies Him to be your Savior in whom you must put your trust. And as Christians, this is pertinent for us as well. Because the gospel, the good news of the person and the work of Christ is also applicable for us who are children of God. For those of us who are Christians, we are sanctified as we continue to behold Jesus in His glory in the light of who He is. And so this is what I want us to look at this morning. This amazing confession made by Peter on behalf of the twelve apostles. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see the soliciting of the confession and the stating of the confession. Very simple outline this morning. The soliciting of the confession and the stating of the confession. First we see the soliciting of the confession. Notice in verse 27 it says that Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This was a location that was approximately 20 to 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was about a full day's walk from Bethsaida where we just saw Jesus healing a blind man. This was an area ruled by Herod Philip. This is different than Herod Antipas, if you remember, from Mark chapter 6, the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. That was Herod Antipas. This was an area ruled by Herod Philip. And Herod Philip was tetrarch of this particular area. And if you remember, tetrarchs were essentially landlords who worked for Rome, carried out Rome's orders, and carried out and advanced Rome's political agenda in particular areas or regions. So Herod Philip is tetrarch over this particular area. And of course, being the humble guy that he was, he conveniently named the city after Caesar the emperor and after himself, Caesarea Philippi. And so it's in and around this area where Jesus finds himself with his disciples. And look at verse 27. It says there that on the way, on the way. In other words, as they are going, as they are walking, they're having an ongoing continual conversation. They're traveling along. And you and I as the readers, as the audience, get a synopsis here about the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in this region of Caesarea Philippi. On the way it says that Jesus questioned his disciples. He questioned his disciples. The parallel account of Luke chapter 9 and verse 18 adds that Jesus had been praying alone when he questioned them. Now normally it was the students who would ask questions of their rabbi but in this case notice it's Jesus who questions his disciples He becomes the interrogator in an effort to draw in his disciples. Jesus questions them, and it's no simple question, is it? It's a loaded question here. This is the ultimate question for them. Who do people say that I am? In other words, what's the popular opinion out there about me? What do people say? What is the common viewpoint? What is the common perception Now remember, given what we've seen, you can imagine the apostles with a perplexed perplexed look on their faces. I mean, up until now, he's never really been occupied, at least from the reader's perspective, with talking openly about what people think about him. He knows that the hearts of people are fickle. He knows why people are following after him. So he hasn't been overly concerned about this. And now he explicitly wants to know from them, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they told him, saying John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets, one of the prophets. Now we've seen those opinions before, haven't we? If you turn back a couple of pages to Mark, chapter 6, just a few pages back. Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Jesus is doing all kinds of miracles, casting out demons, anointing with oil many sick people and healing them, verse 13. And then in verse 14 of Mark chapter 6, it says this, And King Herod heard of it, for his name, Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So one of the popular opinions of people goes back to even Herod Antipas, who because of his guilty conscience, he be, he had beheaded John the Baptist. He had this guilty conscience, and he himself had even popularized the the superstitious view that um, Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Some said he was Elijah, the great prophet who, according to Second Kings chapter two, didn't die but was taken bodily to heaven on the chariot of fire. And so coupled with that, you had prophecies like Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, which speak about Elijah returning as a forerunner before the terrible day of the Lord. So some believe that Elijah would come, and had come indeed, in the person of Jesus Christ. Some believed he was Elijah. Finally, if you notice, some held the opinion that Jesus was one of the prophets The other parallel account of Matthew 16, verse 14, even names Jeremiah. Perhaps he was Jeremiah. And this belief about Jesus potentially being one of the prophets went all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, where Moses foretold of the day when a prophet would arise like himself who would speak for for God to the people. So some people held that he was that particular prophet that Moses prophesied about. In Deuteronomy 18, these were some of the popular opinions that were flying around out there about Jesus Christ. And we've come to other across other opinions in Mark about Christ, haven't we? Back in Mark chapter one, verse 27, it says that after Jesus had taught in the synagogue and then cast out a demon out of a man, that people responded amazed at Jesus's authority. Because he was different than their scribes and Pharisees. They believed that he was a, a, a better teacher than their, than their scribes, than their experts. That he was perhaps the greatest teacher of their day. In Mark chapter 2, verse 12, after healing a paralytic, people, it says, were amazed and were glorifying God, saying this, we have never seen anything like this. See, to many people, Jesus was just a great miracle wonder worker. That's all that he was. Now, not everyone was so positive about Jesus. If you remember, Mark chapter three verse twenty-one, it says talks there about his own family and his closest friends that they had have, have concluded that Jesus had gone mad, that he had gone crazy. And then in Mark three twenty-two, the scribes were even worse. They held the opinion that Jesus was possessed by demons, that he was on Satan's side, working for Satan. Essentially, that Jesus was demonic. That Jesus was working for the opposite, the, the enemy side. Over and over again, beloved, we see that Mark is intent on recording for us people's response to Jesus. Why? Because who a person believes Jesus to be is the central issue of the Gospels. That in the light of what Jesus is doing, we need to check ourselves and ask ourselves, who do I believe that Jesus is? Times haven't changed as far as the plethora of opinions about who Jesus is, right? Today as well. Opinions range all the way from sympathy to hostility concerning who people believe Jesus to be. Some people altogether simply believe that Jesus never existed. That he's a mythological figure, that he's fictional a character who never existed. He's a creation of zealots who tried to advance their religion by creating this person, this character named Jesus. He never existed. But for the most part, most believe that he actually existed, that Jesus was a historical figure. What do they believe? Well, some believe that he was a wise teacher, like the people of his day, that he was the greatest of, of teachers. So wise, so virtuous in his advice and counsel to people. Other people believe that he was a, a loving, peacemaking, nonviolent man. That he was the ultimate, virtuous model of morality that we should follow. Others believe that he was a great prophet. In fact, most Muslims believe Jesus was a great prophet. They believe that. Others believe that Jesus was a revolutionary. A naive, well-intentioned, dreamy-eyed revolutionary who failed. He led a band of well-intentioned men seeking to bring about social justice and liberation for the poor and most ostracized of society. But he failed. And they limit Jesus, who he is, to that particular person. And on and on the list goes, doesn't it? On and on it goes. Now hear me. All of these opinions... Maybe to some of us might seem like, well, what a great compliment. Isn't it great that people actually believe that, those kinds of things, or a combination of those things about Jesus? That's great. But in the end, the Bible would tell us that they are inadequate, incomplete, and even idolatrous. Listen to me. To believe that Jesus is anything less than who the Bible says he is, is damning to your soul. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who do you believe Jesus to be? If all that you believe about Jesus is limited to any of those, thing, uh, th- those, ki- those characters that I mentioned, or a combination of those, and nothing more than you have a problem that you should not walk out of this service today without solving. Now watch this, because the soliciting for an answer continues, doesn't it? Our Lord's first question was specifically tailored to get to what he's most concerned about. And that is the opinion of his beloved disciples. Those who profess to be followers of him. And he gets very direct, doesn't he? Look at verse 29. It says that he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In the Greek, that word you there appears at the beginning of the clause, making it emphatic. Jesus zeroes in on them. You, who do you believe that I am? You who have been with me. You who have sat under my teaching. You who have witnessed my miraculous power and authority. You who have I provided for. You who have I defended. You who I have been faithful to. Who do you say that I am? what a moment huh what a moment you talk about pressure Jesus fixing his eyes on them and wanting to know from them specifically who do you say that I am I mean you probably could cut the tension with a knife there what will they answer who will answer I mean, everything in Mark, beloved, has been leading to this moment. The reader and the audience continually is asking themselves, who is he? Who is he? The disciples asked us back in chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this? And the crowds over and over again in the Gospels, who is this who can do such things, who can speak with such authority? Over and over again, people are asking this question that you and I must also grapple with as the audience and as the readers of Mark. We are drawn in, as students of God's Word, to ask ourselves the same question Who do I think Jesus is? And if I am a non Christian, if I have not turned from my sins, in light of who Jesus is, can I trust Him? for the forgiveness of my sins. And if you are a believer this morning, am I continually beholding this one that I claim to follow, that I might become more and more like Him, that I might be about His mission here on this earth? You and I are challenged with that particular question and the implications of the answer to that question of who Jesus is. See, ultimately, each person must arrive at their own conviction about what they believe about Jesus and act on it. Act on it. Follow through with who we believe Him to be. You can't say, well, you know, my parents believe such and such about Jesus. You know, others have told me over the years that Jesus is such and such. You know, my Those who taught me growing up here in the church, even my Iwana teachers, taught me verses that say that Jesus is such and such. And you kind of leave it there. You know, the great experts, historians, philosophers of the day, they say such and such about Jesus. No, 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 hear me. You must grapple directly with who you believe Jesus to be. And act on that understanding. You cannot ignore or be indifferent to Jesus' claims. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Because how you answer that is an issue of eternal significance and eternal consequence for the well-being of your soul beyond this physical life. I've often thought about this. The least of our worries as human beings is dying physically. We all have an invitation with physical death in this life. None of us are going to avoid that. The question is, where will your soul go forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven with God in His presence because you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the only provision for the forgiveness of your sins by which you can be made right with God? Or will you go to a place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and you're eternally suffering the consequences for your sin? That's a serious issue, isn't it? Let's grapple with who Jesus is, my friends. So you can't leave this to other people's opinions. What does the Bible say about Christ? See, It's one thing to declare the opinions of others. It's quite another thing to declare your own opinion, draw your own conclusion, and stand by it, right? That's what the Bible calls you to. Well, Jesus has been soliciting an answer from his disciples, and now we see, secondly, the stating of the confession. The stating of the confession. And it comes at the end of verse 29. Here's the climax. Here's the pinnacle. Jesus has asked the ultimate question. He wants to know what his disciples believed. And as always, look at verse 29. It's Peter who answers, right? I mean, we can knock on Peter all we want, but he stepped up, didn't he? He was the spokesman for the 12 here. And none of the others argued. Peter answered and said to him, You are the what? The Christ You are the Christ. That's the equivalent Christ there of the Hebrew, which means Messiah, anointed one. You've read the Old Testament when when someone was affirmed to the, the office of prophet, priest, or king, they were anointed for that office in an official capacity, right? Christ here is a royal title. In essence, beloved, what Peter is saying is, you are the Messiah, you are the King, you are the long awaited one from God. He's affirming Jesus' claims. You are the Christ. That's the first time in Mark that a declaration like that comes from the mouth of human beings. If you remember, Mark opened his gospel back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, declaring Jesus' deity like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how he opened. And this is the next time that we actually read that word, Christ, that that title is referenced. And it comes out of the mouth of Peter speaking on behalf of the other apostles. And they don't argue with him, do they? They don't. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we've heard God affirm His Son. God the Father, in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, after Jesus is baptized, says, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. That's, those are the words of God the Father affirming His Son in the light of who He is. And even the demons have affirmed Jesus deity again and again and again. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demons cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, says the demon. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, you are the Son of God. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, what business do we have with one another, say the demons, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I mean, even the demons affirm Jesus' person, who He is, His identity. But now Peter, on behalf of the 12, says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And if you turn with me, To Matthew chapter 16, that's not all he said, right? Matthew chapter 16 is the parallel account for us of this interaction with our Lord by his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, verse 16, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow. The son of the living God. And then notice verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus blesses Peter because God has given him spiritual understanding to see Jesus for who he is, right? And then please notice, it's based upon this confession of peter this truthful confession by peter of who jesus is that we see the first mention of the church in verse 18 i also say to you that you are peter and upon this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overpower it first mention of the church that beautiful new living entity that will be birthed at pentecost in acts chapter 2 The church. Notice verse 18 I say to you that you are Peter, that's the Greek word petros, meaning a small or little rock, and upon this rock, that's the Greek word petra, a large rock, a boulder, a foundational rock, if you will, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What would be the foundation for the church? Not anything physical that passes away, but a confession of something greater, namely the truth about Jesus being the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. That truth. Upon that truth of who Jesus is, the church is founded, beloved. Beautiful, isn't it? Amazing. The church is founded upon the rock of who Christ is. Now notice in verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Now when I read that, this time at least, I thought, now wait. I mean, I can understand why Jesus wanted to keep things quiet on the low down up until this point, but shouldn't he now want to be publicized? Not quite. Not quite. He knows that the religious leaders are vehemently against him. He doesn't want anything to deter him from his purpose. And we're going to look at next week specifically his purpose to suffer and die and rise again for sinners. We're going to see that next week. But don't lose sight of this monumental confession, beloved, by Peter on behalf of the Twelve. Because again, the implication for you and I is, and the question for you and I is this, do you believe... In Peter's words, do you believe that Jesus is God and that he is the Messiah King? And have you appropriated that belief to your life? Put your trust in Jesus. And if you're a believer, are you living in the light of that truth? That Jesus is God and that he is your Messiah, your King, your Savior. And the Bible is... is, Not ambiguous about who Jesus is, right? In John chapter 10 and verse 30, in the midst of a heated exchange with the religious leaders, Jesus said to them, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because in response to Jesus' statement, they wanted to stone him. And in John 10, 33, it says that the Jews, in response to him, said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be, or who he was claiming to be, namely, God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Son, was in the beginning with God. Scripture is unambiguous about who Jesus is, and therefore why we should put our trust in Him. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 I love that text, quoting God the Father, who says this in Hebrews chapter one, verse eight, about the Son. But of the Son, He says, namely, the Father says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom." That's God the Father calling the Son, calling the Son God, King. That's massively significant, isn't it? Titus two, verse thirteen refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And do you recall Doubting Thomas? One of the twelve who, after he touched Jesus post his resurrection, these were the words of Thomas, Doubting Thomas, in John chapter 20, verse 28, he said, My Lord and my what? God. My Lord and my God. Now that confession, beloved, is blasphemy if Jesus isn't God. It's blasphemous. And Jesus never tells him to be quiet. Thomas, you're overdoing it. Hey, chill out. I know you're excited. You just saw me. You got to touch me. Don't overdo it. Jesus never corrects him, does he? Thomas worships him as Lord and God. Why? Because Jesus is the God-man. That's why. Scriptures again and again beat the drum that Jesus is God. Listen, this confession of who Jesus is is essential for salvation. It's essential for salvation because if Jesus isn't God, then He doesn't qualify to be your Redeemer, to be your Savior. Only one who is fully God and fully man can pay for sins sufficiently, right? Jesus is God. And so can I say to you this morning, if you are not a Christian, if Jesus' claims are true, and they are, then you cannot afford to be indifferent. You cannot afford to no lo- to any longer put Jesus off. You cannot ignore Him. As C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing, Jesus' claims show that He's either a lunatic, He's a liar, or He's Lord, and you must bow to Him. And I think the Bible thunderously teaches that it's the latter, that He is Lord, that He's God, Messiah, King. He is the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins, and you must put your trust in Him. He's Lord. This is why in John chapter 20 and verse 31, John writes... That all that Jesus did, all of his miracles were for this purpose. John twenty thirty one: That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Just put your trust in him. And that belief is not simply intellectual belief and a certain set of facts. Faith, beloved, listen to me, is a heartfelt commitment, the conviction of our hearts that leads to a change of life. You're willing to stake your very life on Christ, who you believe has paid sufficiently for your sins and risen again on your behalf, conquering sin and death. Faith is a heartfelt commitment, a conviction of the heart that leads to a change of life. And so this confession is essential. Listen to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. It speaks about... What our response should be when we understand who Jesus is. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And think about that. Whoever believes in Christ, faith is not directionless, ambiguous, undefined. The object of our faith is Christ. Even your own faith doesn't save you. It's Christ who saves, right? Christ. Whoever believes in Him, in Christ, will not be disappointed. Well, this confession of who Jesus is is essential if you want to be saved. You need to count the cost. If you still, even as you sit in this pew this morning, even if you are still continuing to ignore the reality of Jesus' claims and what that means for your life, listen to these words. Because conversely, the person who denies that Jesus is God and Savior, listen to first John chapter two, verse twenty-two. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And we know that there's an ultimate Antichrist in Scripture, right? With a capital A. But what John is telling us is people who reject Jesus, they're all little mini Antichrists. That's a scary term, isn't it? That's what you are if you deny what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And then 1 John chapter 4 verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You see why this is a matter of eternal consequence? Of eternal life or death? Heaven and hell hang in the balance. In your response to who Jesus is, this confession is essential for salvation. Can I remind us also that this confession is exclusive? It's exclusive. Listen to me there aren't many ways to God, not all roads lead to heaven. There aren't many paths to be made right and be reconciled with your Creator. There's only one way, one truth, and one life. No one comes to the Father but through him. His name is Jesus the Lord. That's in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 1 Timothy 2 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Salvation comes only through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Whose name is that? The name of Christ. 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 There aren't many ways to God. And can I remind us? There are only two paths that you can take. Not three or four. Not three or four. All throughout Scripture we have, we have these opposites. You're either on the narrow way of life that leads to life or you're on the broad way that leads to destruction. You either are following our, your master who is God or you're following your master who is Satan. You're either walking in the light or in holiness, in Christ-likeness, or you're walking in darkness according to the ways of the world. You're either godly or you're worldly. You're either walking on the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. Believing, unbelieving, living for Christ or living for yourself. Walking in deception or walking in the truth. Two ways. You're either on the path that leads to heaven or you're on the path that leads to where? To hell. A real place. See, contrary to where our culture says, there aren't many ways to God. There aren't many sides that you can be on. There aren't a lot of teams. There's only two teams. God's team or Satan's team. Theme, team, And we know that the latter's team is going to fail and they're going to lose, right? Definitively. They've already lost in the finished work of Christ. The final death blow is Jesus returning. He will deliver the final death blow to all of those who have rejected him as the provision for the forgiveness of their sins. We know how the story ends. There aren't many ways to God. There aren't many sides that you can be on. It isn't Christ plus Roman Catholicism. Plus a system of of good works that you can somehow, some way, through all of those rituals, be good enough. Listen to me. Roman Catholicism robs Jesus of his sufficiency, that he is enough, that he declared on the cross, "It is finished. It is done. That's it." It isn't Christ plus Roman Catholicism. It isn't Christ plus Mohammed. It isn't Christ plus Buddha. It isn't Christ plus Christian science. It isn't Christ plus um, New Age thinking. Christ alone saves. He is the only way. He is the only answer for the forgiveness of your sins. It isn't Christ plus philosophy. It isn't Christ plus psychology. It isn't Christ plus self-esteem or self-improvement tactics or self-fulfillment. Christ alone saves. Christ saves. It isn't Christ plus for us Christians living in comfortable America. It isn't Christ plus our American dream. It isn't Christ plus our materialism. It isn't Christ plus our carefree life that says as long as I'm comfortable and God gives me everything that I want, that I need, I will follow him. no, it's Christ alone who saves and that we should follow. Look down in Mark chapter 8. And verse 34, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. Such a powerful passage. After Jesus has spent time with his disciples, privately soliciting this answer from them, and then talking about his purpose, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he summons the crowd. All of those people, most of whom have seen him, have seen his miracles and all of that, the fickle crowds who only won his gifts. And listen to this in verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not a very seeker-friendly message, is it? That's not a Joel Osteen kind of a invitation right there, is it? Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but, but whoever, uh, excuse me, let me read that again. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then listen to this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Can I remind you this morning, if you are a Christian... Christianity on this earth right now, especially in this present world, might be very difficult for us. But, beloved, Jesus promises that one day we will live in his glory in a new heavens and a new earth. He will not be ashamed of us. Amen? What a beautiful truth that is. On that note, for those of us who are Christians, it may surprise you again that I have this question again for you. Who do you, Christian, believe Jesus to be? I'm talking to those of us who have put our trust in Christ, who profess Christ, who are, say that we are followers of Christ. Maybe you answer, Kempis, wh- whatever do you mean? I, mean, I thought this was an evangelistic message only for people who have not trusted in Christ. Of course he's God, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's my Savior. What are you talking about? Let me ask you, does it make a difference? Does who you believe Jesus to be make a difference in the way that you live? Do you live in the light of who Jesus is and in the light of the fact that he's died for your sins? Not only to rescue you from the punishment of your sins, but from its power, from its grasp as a believer. Let me ask you, do you live to worship him? Do you worship him? Do you love him? Really from the heart. Beyond what people can see on the outside when you show up to our corporate gatherings and all of that, what is your daily devotion like during the week? Do you worship Christ? Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you spend time in his word daily? Do you really strive to be in daily prayer with him? Is your thinking filled with thoughts about Christ and the gospel? And what an amazing plan and amazing blessings that I have in Christ. And I just want to live for my Savior. Do you love him so as to walk in obedience to him? That which consumes our thoughts is what's most important to us, right? It's what we value and we treasure that we think about most. Do you have your thoughts centered on Christ? Do you worship him? Do you love him? Let me ask you do you live to serve him, Christian? Do you live to serve him? If we were to survey your week, and all of us get the same amount of hours, how much of your time during the week is actually lived out with a heart of service to Christ? Do you serve him and his people in the church? I love the attitude of a longtime, wonderful friend of mine. Told me one time, Kempis, I work my secular job, that is, so that I can serve Christ. I work so that I can serve Christ. In other words, my full-time job is my side gig that pays the bills. And by the way, he was a supervisor. Everywhere that this guy worked, he actually rose up on the ladder and he was a supervisor. I work this side gig so that I can serve Christ in the church. What an attitude. What a reorientation of life. See, we oftentimes think, this is my, the church is my side thing, I'm going to show up Sunday morning or maybe one other time during the week, but throughout the week I live however I want, it's all about me, it's all about my goals and my aspirations and all of those things, and the church becomes a footnote on the story of our lives, right? Do you serve Christ and His people? Third, can I ask you, Christian, in the light of who Jesus is, do you embrace suffering for Christ? Do you embrace suffering for Christ? The latter eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark are now going to be about all about the passion of Christ. His suffering, His going to Jerusalem to die for us. And let me tell you, believer, you and I have the same call to follow His example of daily dying to ourselves, suffering for His sake. Amen. That's something that we here in America as believers, it's very difficult for me and for you to understand that. We hear about atrocities in other countries, and we would never imagine or even accept that that could possibly happen in America, that Christians should even suffer. But that is what's taking place all over the world, in most places of the world, with our brethren. Just read church history. Get on Voice of the Martyrs and read about the persecuted Church. That is the norm in most countries that Christians suffer and we are yelling out bloody murder whenever anything bad happens to us here. Any kind of restrictions are placed upon us as believers. We are called to suffer for His sake. Are you suffering well in your trials because you know that even though you might not have all of the answers to why God is allowing certain things in your life, He is a good God. He is faithful. And He can be trusted. I love the believers in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles, who after they had been... Um, Maligned by people, and after they had been told by their religious leaders not to continue to preach Christ anymore, it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, that the apostles went away, listen to this, rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer for his sake. (laughs) Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Rejoicing. They saw this as their call. Faith in Christ led to suffering. Finally, as a Christian, do you live in the light of who Jesus is and what he's done by proclaiming Christ and fulfilling the Great Commission? Do you proclaim Christ to other people? Are you making disciples? Are you a disciple making disciple? Isn't it true that when someone saves your life, you live to tell about that person? I've known stories of people who someone saved their life and they lived the rest of their life showing gratitude to that particular physical human being. How much more us who have been saved from eternal damnation and separation from God by Jesus, how much more should we be eager to proclaim Jesus Christ? Our motivation, beloved, is love and gratitude for our Savior having done what He did for us so that we proclaim Christ Christ. Are you fulfilling your primary purpose as a Christian in the light of who God is, of Christ is, to make disciples? This begins in our home. This be, this extends to our extended family, to our neighborhoods, our workplace. Again, take the opportunity this holiday season, beloved, to make sure that you are especially sensitive to. God's divine appointments, those opportunities that God is going to give you by just the very fact that people are going to be around you in your presence for you to share Christ with them and live Christ before them. Take that opportunity. See, if we really believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, then it's going to make a difference in the way that we live. Amen. And if we really believe that this one came to suffer for us, die on the cross for our sins, and on the third day rose again, and we put our trust in him, it's going to make a difference in the way that we live. For the disciples, once they understood who Jesus is and what he came to do, the truth made all the difference in the world, and they turned the world upside down, didn't they? We stand in the long line of those who have proclaimed Christ from generation to generation to generation, beloved. We must grasp who Jesus is so that we might be about His mission here on this earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your amazing grace in having given us the truth of Your Word. Father, thank You for the pinnacle, the climax here in Mark and a great reminder for us, the students of Your Word, that Father, we must come to grips with who Jesus is thank you for those of us who have put our trust in Christ that our salvation is secure and yet by your grace and by the power of your spirit we are called to live in the light of who Christ is and what he's done help us to do that Lord out of gratitude and love for you for what you've done through your son and father I pray for those here this morning who have not responded to the claims of Christ that Lord today would be the day of salvation that today would be the day when they would put their trust in Christ that lord they might count the pleasures of this life as passing in light of the wonder and the beauty of knowing Christ Jesus as lord and savior we pray for that this morning in jesus name amen scripture quotations taken from the new american standard bible copyright by the lockman foundation